I want something great. I want something that nobody's ever done before. We ain't great. We're just some guys from Jersey. If we can't be great, then there's no sense in ever playing music again, sir. It was 18 years ago that a turquoise Chevy convertible went off the Raritan Bridge. Its driver was Eddie Wilson of Eddie and the Cruisers. His body was never found. You ever wonder what it might have been like if he was still around? I used to wonder. It ate me up. And some nights it's like Eddie's still alive. Now yet he died, the cruisers died with him. There was magic in the night. A sweet love song. Frank, what happened that last night at the recording studio? The night that Eddie died. There's no way on earth I'd go into that with you. To your heart filled with dreams. To walk away. Last night, there was a car sitting in my driveway. Just like Eddie's. He blinked the headlights high and low and high again. Just like Eddie. I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would a review make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 236, Eddie and the Cruisers. And this is a listener request, and I can say that it was a uh, listener request that was new to me, as you like to call it. Oh, yeah. Listener request number 16, courtesy of Ryan. We thank you for reaching out. Ryan came to us with a couple of options. The way we like it. At first, I was going to choose his other pick because I had seen that movie, and neither of us had seen Eddie and the Cruisers. But then I thought, might as well challenge ourselves. Come on. Push it a little bit. So this is new to us, and just like Hot Dog, the movie, (laughs) (laughs) this movie is Essentially not available to stream anywhere right now, which is ridiculous. 
keeps coming up in conversation though just this idea of you think everything is out there and just available and really it's not no there's the surface level stuff all the stuff you would expect really but then once you dig a little deeper you start coming across movies that they might as well not even exist anymore is the way that it is in 2021 that's a sad scene with how people rely on streaming and whatnot so i went out to a local store the only store in our entire city i think that would have this on blue right now yeah fair because there aren't a lot of places that would have the deep cuts no and shop factory put out a double feature blu-ray of the two eddie and the cruisers films two movies i had never seen i bought it specifically for the podcast yeah i'm actually re-borrowing the blu-ray so now i can watch the second one <laughs> yes, and we will talk about Eddie McCruiser's two colon Eddie Lives <laughs> later at the end of the show, even though Matt hasn't seen it yet. Yep. But anyway, here we are. Listener requests. We finally got back to it. I know that we've been sitting on this one and a few others for a while. We're going to have three more listener requests before we get to the greatest October this year. So one more in August, two in September. I do think if I had seen this movie between the ages of 16 and 19, I would have loved it. Because during that time of my life, anything about a band, I was like all in on. So before we jump into Eddie and the Cruisers, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. On there, you can tweet at us if you'd like a sticker. How many do we have left? Still a decent amount? Still or? a stack. All right. I mean, I, I don't know, like uh, 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 okay, three, so three and a half inches. Holy shit. <laughs> Maybe you went a little overboard. No, no. They're running down. Okay. It's more than half gone. All right. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. And if you have a listener request, you can always let us know on there as well. As mentioned, Ryan gave us a, a couple choices. I think that's the preferable way to do it, only because... There are some things that just aren't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> For various reasons. It may even be movies or things that we like, but... We've also had people request movies we've already done, which is just sort of hurtful. <laughs> yeah, that has happened a little bit. Although, usually they realize it. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or whatever. By the way, I don't really blame people for that because I forget which episodes we've done. Oh, yeah. Just we like, just spent 45 minutes going I know. through our whole history, and you were like, I can't remember us doing this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's ones that I'm like, I know we did it, but I have like no memory of recording it. But I mean, even talking about just buying Blu-rays, there's times where I get on like Criterion, and I'm like, do I have this? Oh, yeah. You know? That's definitely happened with me as well. (laughs) Yeah. And so if you send in a listener request at this point with Greatest October coming up and the holidays and our break that we take and all that stuff, we may not get to it for a while, but we will get to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have grandiose plans on the schedule. So if we're throwing in listener requests a year and a half out, I mean, don't worry. We have stuff planned way beyond that. (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be a year and a half that they'd have to wait, but (laughs) it might be a few months, that's for sure. I'm thinking this calendar year is starting to look more challenging. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Although there's some slots that we could move stuff around. Absolutely. But yeah, there's no promises. If it's a pretty good choice, that helps. (laughs) And finally, if you'd care to do so, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. 
and Matt Crosby on there. How many movies do you think you'll log this year? I don't know, a thousand maybe. That's pretty good. Know. If I can get to three hundred, I think uh, <laughs> it'll have been a pretty good year. That's I'm almost way a past three hundred yeah, already. I know. <laughs> I'm still burning a lot of time trying to pick movies at any given time. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's that brutal. That definitely happens. It's so brutal. 45 minutes at night sometimes, and it's just like, <laughs> you know what? I'm just taking my glasses off. And I've off seen right the ones you've picked. <laughs> Actually, I, you, haven't, you haven't seen a lot of them because I won't even finish it. Be- and then I'm just like, I can't go back to this now. Yeah, it's tough. I, will say, I was going to save this reveal for when we do recommendations, but we're kind of on this topic, so I think it's okay to talk about it. I'm back on Criterion Channel. Yeah, I am too. And I'm loving it. I'm super happy. Netflix hasn't had a movie that I've wanted to watch in like three years. <laughs> Prime, I'm struggling with the recent ads. HBO Max, I feel like I've burned through a lot. And getting right on Criterion Channel, having this neo-noir right. section that That's they have up I right now. Up oh, it's great. Section. Yeah. So I'm recommending people not part of the recommendation section. Get on Criterion Channel. Yeah, they have a lot of good stuff that goes beyond just the stuff that they've released in physical media. They have themed sections every month and stuff like that. And there actually is a lot on there. I I think there's still some things that they could do to make the interface a little bit better. Yeah, showcase what all they have. Yeah. But it's fun, and and there's good stuff up there. All right, so let's get into it. Eddie and the Cruisers, 1983, came out before I was born and Matt as well, obviously. Directed by Martin Davidson, screenplay by Davidson and his sister Arlene Davidson, based on the novel by P.F. Flug. In my research for this episode, I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to figure out if Martin and Arlene Davidson were married (laughs) or what the deal was, because I was like, it doesn't say anywhere. Yeah. And so I thought it would be confusing to not address it, and I finally figured out it was his sister. Okay read a heartwarming story about Arlene later in life in a retirement home with this movie. Not going to get into it. Don't want to cry. Wow. All right. <laughs> but it's out there for people. It was a nice touching little story about this movie and Michael Paré and her brother and everything and All screening right. this movie for people. And it was a nice little fun story before it's making she passed me, uh, away. Feel good. All right. Eddie and the Cruisers stars Michael Paré. Tom Berenger, Joe Pantoliano, Matthew Lawrence, Helen Schneider, and Ellen Barkin, who went uncredited for this movie. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that part of it. (laughs) And has spoken about how much she hated doing it and didn't like the script. (laughs) So this movie is a first-time watch for us. I watched it actually a few months ago, as did you. And then we circled back to, to do it for the podcast. So it's new to us. This movie has an interesting history. We're going to get into that as we go. Yeah. It has, I would say, a cult status, although it's unclear how big of a cult status that is now. I think it was probably bigger like 20 years ago, maybe in the 90s and into the 2000s. But by now, since you can't even stream it, it's hard to say how much people care about this movie right now. I don't know. I was definitely familiar with the title, but I would say pretty much nothing else. And after you watched it, you were like... (laughs) Dude, you got to hear these songs. It just is Springsteen, basically, which I'm sure we'll talk a decent amount. And you played the songs, and I'm like, I know these songs. Yeah. Well, the songs were pretty familiar, and not just because they sound like they're outtakes from Born to Run or something. 
I'm pretty sure I had heard on the dark side before. I, I feel yeah, like I feel like I heard it on like classic rock radio stations. Right, and that was the limit to the familiarity with this was the title and that I didn't know what it was right. about. I had a vague sense because I think I had looked at the Blu-ray at the store that I bought this from before, just being like, "What is this?" and like yeah. reading about it real quick and seeing some of the names that were in it. But I had no idea even when it came out it's not like i looked at it and was like oh 1983 i was like oh, yeah. this could have been from the 60s up through the end of the 90s i had no right, idea right, i didn't yeah. know much about it and so when researching it i saw that it was loosely molded into a citizen kane style story structure although i would argue that they sort of dropped the ball a little bit with the ending of the film they don't quite reach <laughs> that sort of a it's not a climax. rosebud moment <laughs> no but that's the general sense i don't know that the novel is necessarily framed that way i haven't read it i doubt it's even in print who even knows yeah but there was a cursed release for this film it was a box office flop initially it had a five million dollar budget and it made 4.7 million at the box office so it wasn't okay. like an unmitigated disaster no. but it wasn't great is basically how that goes Compared to the sequel, this was <laughs> Avatar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were poor reviews initially, and I'm going to read some of those now and get oh, your good. reaction to the, yeah. to the quotes that I'd are like to hear it. available. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars, which isn't too bad. He no. wrote, despite a good cast, quote, terrific music, and an intriguing concept, quote, the ending is so frustrating, so dumb, so unsatisfactory <laughs> yeah. that it gives a bad reputation to the whole movie. Now, we're obviously going to talk about the ending when we get there. Right. I think that I get what they were going for and the vibe of it and how it ties in with like Jim Morrison or yeah. Elvis and like rock stars that people wanted to still believe were alive and that kind of a thing. Right. But when you watch it now and it builds towards that ending, I think you're expecting more. Yeah. And it never really delivers. I actually much. think it's like mostly pretty great through the Benton College flashback scene. And then it starts to kind of trail off after that for me. I think they should have come up with a better ending, but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. I think I want to make it clear to Ryan and the listeners that we both like this movie oh, yeah. and enjoy it. But there are definitely some things about it that you can sort of see why it didn't get good reviews and why people didn't really click with it initially. Right. But the music was a big part of it finding an audience. And the music is terrific. I agree with uh, Roger Ebert on that one. In her review for the New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote, quote, Some of the details ring uncannily true, like the slick oldies nightclub act that one of the cruisers is still doing oh, yeah. nearly 20 years after Eddie's supposed death. They hit that. Other aspects of the film are inexplicably wrong. <laughs> Eddie's music sounds good, but it also sounds a lot like Bruce Springsteen's, and it would not have been The Rage in 1963. However, she did praise Paré's performance. Mr. Paré makes a fine debut. He captures the manner of a hot-blooded young rocker with great conviction, and his lip-syncing is almost perfect. I do think Michael Paré is decent in this movie. I think he's better at playing the frontman character than when he actually has, like dialogue interactions with the yeah. characters. I've seen some of his other films. I just rewatched Streets of Fire, which has like Diane Lane as the rock star in that. Okay. And it's like a fun 80s musical directed by Walter Hill. Oh, yeah. Rick Moranis is in it too. 
it's a weird movie. I think it's actually on Netflix now. Recently was added. I have the okay. factory Blu-ray for it. And the music in that is awesome as well, just as an aside. But one thing that did jump out to me was Michael Paré is not a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> it just he wasn't yeah, good in it, right. and I don't know that he's great in this either. But he has the look, absolutely. And that is sort of enough. I think so. In this movie, yeah, that's it, that's what you need out of this character. Gary Arnold for the Washington Post wrote, "Quote: At any rate, it seemed to me that what Eddie and the Cruisers aspired to do was certainly worth doing." The problem is that it finally lacks the storytelling resources to tell enough of an intriguing story about a musical mystery man. And I think that's sort of echoing what Ebert was saying in a less <laughs> a less direct way. Right. <laughs> Where, as you said, up until a certain point, you're buying into the mystique. You're oh, yeah. living in this rock and roll fantasy, and then... It sort of unravels in the final act yeah. where you're like, oh, this I mean, is what we've been building towards. I really like a lot of the flashback sequences, and I like some of the stuff that's happening in whatever present time during the movie. But I remember telling you when you asked me my thoughts on the movie that as it heads towards the ending, it was feeling like an Are You Afraid of the Dark plot to me. Yeah, and I took your joke yeah. and tagged it with the Scooby-Doo. Right. Because it is literally like an unmasking yeah, yeah. almost at the end. You're like, oh, it's Mr. Weatherby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then they kind of let him get away with it. But despite the bad reviews, there was a fast transformation into somewhat of a cult hit via HBO screening. So we've seen this before on the podcast, and I think Hot Dog the Movie was one of them. But there's other ones, too, where in the early days of HBO, they would acquire movies for cheap that Mm -hmm. didn't do that well and play the shit out of them. Right. And in the summer... Or on weekends or sick days from school, kids yeah. would see these same movies over and over again. And when you're a kid, you're very willing to rewatch the same well, shit. Even Donnie Darko is kind of one of those movies that had. Yeah, that'd be like later yeah, era. Yeah. But yeah, same principles, which is building up an audience through repetition. Right. <laughs> and so that brings us to the music, which is what I think caught on and what made this movie a, a somewhat of a cult hit. So when you read a novel, Based on a fictitious band. By the way, Zach is addressing the uh, listening audience, not me. If he's talking about reading a novel. (laughs) (laughs) It's impossible to tell what this fictitious band is going to sound like just from the written word. You can sort of use words and stuff and compare it to things, but the music doesn't actually exist. So when they were trying to figure out what the sound and look and everything was going to be for the cruisers, they were thinking at first of Dion and the Belmonts. But then they wanted to add elements of Jim Morrison and the Doors, which of course doesn't sound anything like that, but more of the mystique and the mystery and sort of the power of the front man kind of a thing. But then they were like, well, it's a New Jersey story, so we need a quintessential New Jersey bar band, a la Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And they went on this little search and they found John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, who is from Rhode Island, I believe, and has ties to Bruce. And Bruce, I think knew john and you know i i I don't want to speak out of school but it seems like john cafferty and the beaver brown band might have been more of like a a nobody band okay that caught on and got lucky with this movie yeah yeah just sort of another bruce imitator in his shadow like Southside Southside johnny Johnny, yeah yeah except they got to be on a movie so it took them to this next level the soundtrack eventually goes quadruple platinum on the dark side is a huge single on the rock charts for a little while right 
And I think that's what led to them re-releasing the movie in theaters, thinking like, oh, well, people love this now, and then it bombed again, and... <laughs> You know, yeah. it led to a sequel, which also bombed, which we'll talk about <laughs> later. So I don't know how big People this cult not really is. Getting it that it's not going to be a hit. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too. Like reading quotes from Martin Davidson, who is an old man now, but is still alive. He still is in denial. He's like, this movie should have been a hit. <laughs> <laughs> I think his other movie that people might have heard of that he directed was like Lords of Flatbush. Okay, which yeah. had like Stallone in it. Uh huh. He may have done like one or two other minor movies that people would know, but a lot of TV and stuff like that later on. Not an overly impressive filmography. No, I don't want to shit on the guy, but no. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not really. That's fair. Hey, he's doing better than me. Eddie and the Cruisers is essentially a rock and roll fantasy or fairy tale, but it's still very much steeped in reality. It's not like Streets of Fire, which would come out a couple years later, which is almost in an alternate yeah. universe where it's not quite real. This is real. Yeah. It's just sort of, it's got that little tinge of mystery to it. Right. Could something unbelievable happen? Well, you and I talked about this. I guess we can point out that we watched the movie together before recording. Right, because I had to do my notes for it. I couldn't lend you the Blu-ray, right. so there's really no other way to watch this movie. Yeah. Not really boding well for the number of downloads, probably, <laughs> but hey, Ryan, this is for you, pal. I hope you enjoy it. But we talk about how it's like hard to sort of figure out their rise to fame when the album comes out. How popular is it? Yeah. The flashbacks are fun, but they don't tell you the full story. Right. So what I was alluding to earlier, as far as the ending goes, and what I interpret the ending to try to be capturing, and I don't know if Roger Ebert missed this or if he didn't miss it and just didn't care, there was this, A, nostalgia out the ass in the 80s. We already probably have talked about this before. Sure. But there were a million movies like Porky's, (laughs) <laughs> which glamorized the 50s. Yeah. But it wasn't just the 50s. It was also the 60s. By the end of the decade, you would have the Wonder Years debuting. People were nostalgic for the time they grew up in because the baby boomer generation was so huge, that post-war era, the Vietnam War era, all that shit, 50s, 60s, into the early 70s. Those were the people that were coming into prominence, and they wanted to tell stories about their Wonder years, for lack of a better expression. That's one. And two, rock heroes faking their own deaths. Something that never actually happened. Right. Yet people were obsessed with this. And always pushed that narrative. Jim Morrison was on the cover of Rolling Stone in the 80s, where he's like, he's hot, he's sexy, he's dead, or whatever the famous headline was. And he'd been dead for like 15 years by that point, which... It doesn't seem like that many when you think about, like, well, what's 15 years ago from now? But it seemed like a whole other era. By the right. time you're in the synths of the 80s, like, the idea of the doors seemed crazy. But there were always these little revivals of interest in things like that. Oh, sure. And, of course, Elvis is another one. People well, always I, thought he was still alive. I mean, and- I think, like, Vegas takes odds on it still. That, like, <laughs> is Elvis coming back this year? <laughs> but there's also, like, a little bit of a lost innocence that it's capturing where... People were growing up and realizing that a lot of their heroes died and weren't coming back, that there was drug overdoses, that sort of the glamorous side of rock and roll wasn't as glamorous as it seemed. The 80s was maybe a little bit of a reality check. And so a movie like this is 
exploring that innocence and that magic in the night, that kind of a thing. Like maybe something great could still happen. And the one thing that I kept coming back to in rewatching this to do my notes for the podcast was there was still like a purity yeah. to the music, romanticizing it. And I was comparing it a lot to Bull Durham with baseball. Well, definitely. It was a long time ago when we did Bull Durham on the show, <laughs> yeah. but we talked about how in the Sandlot too, we talked about it, but right. there was like that idea of romanticizing baseball to the point that it seems crazy now Yeah, when people barely care about it. Well, I mean, the Eddie character is kind of like this whole dreamer wants to be a legend is very poetic about how words and music go together. <laughs> that's really all he says, though. Well, words really, and music. That's it. That's the whole poem. With yeah. his two fingers. Right. <laughs> but, you know, talking about the uh, Joey Pants character being a dreamer, I mean, when I think about myself, I feel like those were kind of the shoes I was filling, like the dreamer who really has nothing to offer. <laughs> yeah. I just think that, Eddie and the Cruisers in 2021 doesn't make any sense to anyone. It's playing with emotions and ideas that don't translate to people that are like under 30 now. That's right. They'd be like, "What? what is this? Yeah. Did they have hits? <laughs> Did people care about them? Like they wouldn't really be able to reconcile what the people's emotions were for Eddie. But like I said, I think it's playing in the arena of like, these are the people's emotions for Elvis. These are the people's emotions for Jim yeah. Morrison or Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin or people that died. Buddy Holly, it's whoever. It's hard to put it into perspective now because the way technology is, you can put yourself out there way easier. But there was just so much magic to, if you're playing in a band, being able to play a live show, the idea of like recording a song, it seemed like impossible to people. Yeah. In a way that it just doesn't resonate. Kind of like us doing this podcast. Like, if we got a chance to be on this shitty radio station that Joey Pants is at, <laughs> that would have been like, because we'd be just like, how can we do this otherwise? How can we talk on a microphone? Do you think our podcast has more listeners than Joey Pants' pretend radio show? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think there's some sadness to how many people were checking in for his show. All right. Let's get into the movie itself. It opens with a performance of the main song, and this movie will be populated with John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band's music. And just to be clear, because I don't know if we really drove this home, <laughs> when you listen to these songs and you start this movie, if you've never seen it before, if you have any familiarity with Bruce Springsteen, you will just assume these are Bruce Springsteen songs. Performed by Bruce Springsteen. Right, right. I mean, They're it's... written like Springsteen songs. They sound like Springsteen songs. On the nose. They have a saxophone. Oh, yeah. They're not just in the same genre. Like, sometimes oh, you yeah. create a genre in and of yourself, like De Palma working in the Hitchcock. Hitchcock. It's not that. Right. These sound exactly like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. On the Dark Side specifically sounds like she's I mean, the one. And there's a visual element here. The stage presence is Springsteen-esque. Yes. Not necessarily just the Michael Perry character, but the group clapping and like dancing in circles. The drummer drums just like Max whatever. <laughs> Max Weinberg. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I guess Springsteen was cool with it since he knew Cafferty. Springsteen, by this point, we're talking like Nebraska. 
Yeah. Almost. I He's guess. like, I gotta go make some sad acoustic songs. This like isn't even my. Well, yeah, it was style like the anymore. river, which is the big double album, and then Nebraska. By this point, he wasn't really working in that born to run right genre anymore. And this sort of feels like that, although it's not as heavily produced, but it's the same thing. Yeah, it was a little disconcerting for me until I looked into it and yeah, was like yeah. reading about it and like other people were like oh yeah if you click on John Caffrey right. and the Beaver Brown Band Wikipedia it, it in the first paragraph it's like people compare them to Bruce Springsteen yeah. cuz at first you're like th- this something unethical seems like it's happening here <laughs> you know yeah and as Janet Maslin pointed out in her review it is anachronistic they come to prominence in the early 60s nobody was making music that sounds right. like this that's sort of a big part of the movie, really, that's hard to overcome. Yeah. But you sort of get used to it. The years don't really matter in the end. It's just like, this happened then, now is later. Right. And that's it. Trying to match it up with like the real world and real rock and roll, it's a waste of time. It's not a, a good point. fit, no. It just it doesn't yeah. really matter. It's not like this movie is so dedicated to being a period piece in every other detail that Absolutely. it stands out. It's yeah. just like... That was then, this is now. Right. <laughs> the end. <laughs> we have Michael Paré as the front man, Eddie Wilson. How did he miss out on auditioning for The Outsiders if he didn't? I know. Seems I, like a natural fit. That's He looks like a greaser. When did that come out? Was that also 83 or was that 84? You're challenging me. I don't know. For some reason, I want to say it was 84, but it might have also been 83. But it's the same time period. Right. And, yeah, we look back at The Outsiders and we're like, yeah, but that was, like, a ton of stars. But it's like, they weren't really stars then, though. Yeah, yeah. He could have fit in with that crowd. So this live performance of the cruisers that we're seeing of on the dark side, it, it turns out it's a video of the band in action from their heyday, which is the early 60s. The present day of the movie is about 18 years later in the early 80s. We have a television reporter named Maggie Foley, played by Ellen Barkin, and she's going to investigate the mysterious disappearance of legendary rock star Eddie Wilson. He you, is presumed dead. Now, you do feel like the Ellen Barkin angle, this character, this is what kicks off the movie. But it doesn't kind of really hold. At a certain point, it just go, it, it does finish. It wraps back up with the piece that she's doing. Right. Well, I guess... She's kicking up all these feelings by right. reaching out to Doc it's and the Frank and everything. But yeah, that's really it. Though. You don't really stay overly invested in her journey to make this piece. No, because it does sort of trick you into thinking she's going to be the main character, and then she's not in it for like a long stretch. <laughs> well, uncredited what might have been a clue that she wasn't. <laughs> right, but I yeah, mean, yeah. The, if you didn't know who Ellen right, Barkin right, was, yeah. it's like your first time watching the movie or whatever. I always liked Ellen Barkin. She reminds me a lot of Cameron Diaz for some reason. Yeah, I find that somewhat shocking, but I, I, I don't... You don't think they look a little bit alike in the face? Just like a little well, bit? I mean, yeah, okay. That's... I don't know. I just get that vibe. I mean, All Cameron right. Diaz is like a much bigger star at her peak. Ellen Barkin has had a long career. She still works now, 40 years basically, but she was never like huge. Yeah. She, she almost a, kind of reminds me more of like a Kathleen Turner type. I don't get that. Okay. <laughs> People love to hear us just yeah. be like, this person reminds me of this person, but we don't know why. And we're like as far apart as possible. <laughs> so you think that she would have been competing for Kathleen Turner roles in the 80s? I don't see her as that type of actress, really. Yeah. 
Her and Body Heat? Come on. Get out of here. <laughs> I could see it. Susan and- Sea of Love. <laughs> yeah, because Body Heat and Sea of Love are the same. <laughs> on March 15th, 1964, Wilson crashed his car, a 57 Chevy, through the guard railing of the Howard S. State and Memorial Causeway and plunges into the bay. The car is recovered, but Eddie's body was not. This is just sort of accepted throughout the film as something that could possibly happen. I know that eventually you would give up, but he's a big fucking rock star, and they're just like, we can't find his body. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, that's I it. feel like they would never let It doesn't let this look go. like that deep of a river, to tell you <laughs> I the know. Truth. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't think they would really let that go very easily. Right. I think they would be like, if we can't find the body in this situation, it's more likely than not that he's alive. Right, that he probably hit his head and he doesn't know who he is or something. <laughs> something like that. And that's why it is kind of being floated out there, because people are just like, how could they not find the body? Well, that's the thing. The Nobody hook, actually says that, though. The hook of Maggie's story is the possibility of Eddie still being alive, and her like one producer guy's like, Eddie lives, or whatever. And that <laughs> ends up being the yeah, yeah. fucking title of the sequel. But it is weird to me. Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to launch into her whole spiel, and then... Oh, yeah. Circle back to this in a minute. So she tells us the story of Arthur Rimbaud. He's a French poet from the 1800s who basically only wrote when he was a teenager. It sounds like a fucking Tumblr account or something. It's like, <laughs> oh, God. I'm sure his poems are great. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of like French poetry majors listening now and being like, how dare you? <laughs> but really, we're going to listen to some fucking dude who probably looked like timothy chalamet laying around being like oh life a season in hell (laughs) like shut up (laughs) but yeah his big work one of his works was called a season in hell and he stopped writing at age 19 disappeared essentially off the face of the planet but showed up again on his deathbed 20 years later he actually died at like 37 so oh man was a pretty short life but he stopped all of his creative output at 19 and so they're drawing parallels between Arthur Rambo and Eddie Wilson. And you're like, well, why? And then you're like, okay, well, the mystery starts with the night of Eddie's accident. Eddie had just left the studio where he had just turned in new material recorded by the Cruisers. This would have been their follow-up album to their big album, which was called like Tender Years, right? Yeah, yeah. The record company hated the new album and rejected it. <laughs> the name of that album, A Season in Hell. That's right. So my first thought was, well, how is Maggie Foley the first person who's come up with this theory? Yeah. 20, 20 years later, she's the only one who's thought about this? Because, <laughs> yeah. let's face it, calling an album in 1963 a season in hell would have been shocking, probably. So people would have been like, well, what is that from? They would have looked it up. Okay, so this guy... Although, look, no Wikipedia. It's a, a lot... <laughs> yeah, but people could figure it out. Yeah, yeah. There like, wasn't Wikipedia when she figured it out either. I know, but you need like an encyclopedia collection. Where are you finding this stuff? <laughs> People used to go to the libraries. Oh, man. I don't know what that is. So basically, she's floating the theory that Eddie's pulled an Arthur Rambo. That he, for whatever reason, decided to take a powder and left his life yeah, pretended to die. He didn't take the criticism of Season in Hell. Yeah. It's like when you get a one-star review... <laughs> All of a sudden, when we get one star ratings on the podcast, only to show back up on your deathbed 30 years later. 30 minutes later. (laughs) Well, aren't you 37? Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. 
and you've sort of touched on it there in your little joke that was aimed at me, but Eddie is kind of a baby. Really? And he's not a good dude a lot of the times in this movie. Yeah. Now, you know, he has some rights to be angry at some of the stuff that happens, but I don't know. I don't know if that's intentional or not. If we're supposed to see through the mystique or if we're supposed to believe in him as this like cool, powerful rock god. Yeah, I feel like he doesn't really come off as charming as maybe he's supposed to be. He doesn't really seem likable in a lot of the scenes. I don't know. Yeah, but are we only thinking that because we assume that the people making this movie were somewhat inept? Or I don't know. Because if this was made by like Martin Scorsese, we'd be like, well, clearly we know that Eddie's not a good guy. Right. And that we're supposed to see these flaws in him. I don't know. I think that adds a layer to the movie. He's a complicated figure. Yeah, He's yeah. not just some like ultra cool guy all the time. But I just feel like there's this other side of the coin, like the good side, the cool, charming, like this is a guy I want to be around. I almost feel like you don't see enough of that. You just are supposed to believe that it's there. Yeah, I do think that they overly complicate the story with Eddie's mystique because of the whole who wrote the songs thing, right, which right. is only really positioned in a certain way it's not like they hide it but they say it and then they're like but also he's this genius eddie is that is so demanding and everything it's like well he didn't really even write the song yeah right (laughs) because i do think that a lot of times you'll see oh eddie's supposed to be a mixture of all these people including dion and the belmonts and jim morrison and bruce springsteen and also brian wilson and i'm like i don't know it seemed like brian wilson had a lot more going on. Oh yeah. As far as like the song construction. I don't get the genius vibe from Eddie. Right. I think he wants to be a genius and that's why he's like pissed. <laughs> Cause he just doesn't know how to be and everyone can see through it. Why would the review make a point of saying I'm definitely not a genius? <laughs> <laughs> that was the season in hell reviews. <laughs> The other big revelation that Maggie has is that the tapes for A Season in Hell are missing. And she points out that they were checked out from the studio on March 16th, 1964, the day after Eddie died. Again, how is she the only one who's found this out? I know. Someone else would have pointed out that mystery and been like, who the fuck has these tapes? And don't they have to sign out for them? Really? And they figure it out like they that They only way? had two tapes? Like, Any like... person can just show up yeah, and yeah. be like, hey, I'm taking these. Right. No record of it, apparently. But okay, whatever. We're nitpicking it to death. Yeah. Come on. (laughs) We're ready to go with it. The movie then cuts to Frank Ridgway, played by Tom Berenger, and he was a member of the Cruisers. He's the only member of the Cruisers that doesn't age, apparently. (laughs) Looks exactly the same in the flashbacks. It was confusing to me the first time. It took me a few minutes to really get caught up in the movie. Because we see him present day. When the movie's taking place, and then he sits in his desk and flashes back. If you look away for a second and don't catch the transition, I mean, look, he's a high school teacher. It doesn't seem like things are going particularly great for him. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he works in a bar at night. Yeah, yeah he's just mopping I up. Mean, and then the band walks in, and I'm just like, I don't get it. I don't <laughs> understand what's happening here. So we flash back. Frank's mopping up at a club after hours. As I said, looking suspiciously similar to how he'll look 20 years later. <laughs> looks the same through the whole movie. Yeah, at least some of the other cruisers change their appearances a little bit. Sometimes too much, like Joe Pantaleone. Yeah. Who... Even Joanne, 
looks kind of ridiculous. Like she doesn't really look yeah, but there's natural. But you look, she looks older. Yeah, yeah, you're like okay, they're putting in some effort, and then Frank just <laughs> looks exactly just like the same. I, I look the same for twenty years. It's just how it is. A lot of it is fill in the blanks yourself. You have to sort of piece together the backstories a little bit because, like I said, the flashbacks are super entertaining, but they don't always fill in all of the details. That's as true. To what's happening? Yeah. So basically, I look at it as at this point in time. The Cruisers are sort of an up-and-coming local act who does mostly covers. Right. And their originals are very simplistic, early days rock and roll. Like, Terrible. Betty Lou has a new pair right. of shoes. Just not good. And they're going to play this club where Frank works. So let's run through the lineup a little bit pretty quickly here. We have the manager of the band, Doc Robbins. That's Joe Pantaleone. Yeah. I don't know why he's always a presence, but he is. It's almost like he's a member of the Cruisers, and he certainly acts like it later. Yeah, these people that would just latch on, and Sal talks about later when he's like, I just need to try to hitch on to Eddie, and that could be my ticket to fame. If you had one person that could be a star, it could bring along a lot of people that might not have much to actually offer. Yeah, because he doesn't even really seem to know how to be a manager. No. He's just sort of a dick. That's another thing. We'll talk about that more later, but the flashbacks don't really paint a lot of the members of the cruisers in a good light. That's right. We kind of shit on Eddie, but Eddie is nowhere near the worst. Uh, Sal and Doc never look good in the flashbacks. That's ever. true, yeah. So we've the Actually base- Sal never really looks good at all. <laughs> and Doc, well, he does seem humbled if I think a little bit by okay. his, the patheticness of what he's doing later. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. The bass player is Sal Amato, played by Matthew Lawrence, not the same Matthew Lawrence that people From might know. The Lawrence Brothers. Yeah, not that one. Spelled different, actually. The sax player is Wendell Newton. The backup singer and Eddie's girlfriend is Joanne Carlino. The drummer is Kenny Hopkins. And immediately upon meeting the band, there's some forbidden sparks between Joanne and Frank. You can sort of see the writing on the wall right away. Yeah. Tale as old as time. This band comes in, they seem like rock gods to Frank, who's basically a janitor. (laughs) He sets his sights on Joanne. Joanne is a stunning 50s-style greaser chick. I mean, I know it's the 60s, but, you know, like that early days rock and roll, like leather jackets, tight white tees, tight jeans. She's like a rock goddess. Just super cool. Lights up the room when she walks in. Joanne's played by a woman named... Helen Schneider, who was not really much of an actress. She's sort of terrible in some of her scenes in this. Although, it doesn't really affect the movie because her presence is so strong. But she went on to have a music career where she's been a big star in Germany, evidently. Yeah, good for her. And so this movie has a cult following in Germany just because of her. Oh, wow. Okay. And I know that's why I like it. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I like Joanne a lot. I also like Maggie a lot. Yeah. Good cast. <laughs> <laughs> it is a strong cast because you have to remember, it's not like any of these people were like big yet. Yeah. And a fair amount of them went on to have nice careers. I was super in on Joanne, though. I totally am aligned with Frank. As soon as she walks into the room, I'm spending the next 20 years of my life trying to figure out how I can get it going. Yeah, and that's girl. basically what happens. Absolutely. With Frank. Yep. So Eddie sees potential in Frank because Eddie's got these big aspirations, but he turns out he's not much of a lyricist himself. So what we see early on is the band playing a cover of Run Around Sue, and then they launch into one of Sal's songs called Betty Lou Has a New Pair of Shoes. Terrible. 
not a great song, although it's catchy enough where I could see it being like a yeah, yeah. an early days hit. Eddie's not really feeling it. He doesn't like the tempo and how he's like. It feels like I'm not singing anything specific. Well, he wants, I mean, if like, you're deeper lyrics, a guy right, you're a guy like Eddie who kind of fancies himself a Jim Morrison type pre Jim Morrison. I don't really think Betty Lou got a new pair of shoes. <laughs> this is not the song that speaks to my people. Yeah, the movie never confronts it head on, but if you're going to address one of the criticisms, which was pointed out in that one review about the music feeling anachronistic, it just doesn't belong to this era at all. Right. They do sort of address it in the film, never like head on, but they do say things like Eddie's ahead of his time. This yeah, is yeah. ahead of its time. This whole scene here where Frank steps up and he's talking about the Sisora and all this different shit. And then they launch it. Eventually, he'll play for them on the dark side and stuff. And some of the members of the band laugh at it because it's so <laughs> bizarre to them. It's like, Sal, you showed up with Betty Lou's got a new pair of shoes yeah, but, and you're laughing at this. But Betty Lou has a new pair of shoes is a song you would hear on the radio in 1962. Yeah, yeah. Nobody had ever heard anything like what he was doing. Right, right. So sometimes but, that's met with resistance. I know, but it's weird, though, because it does sound good. <laughs> like it's no, sound- I know, but our ears are used to hearing like fifty okay. more years of rock yeah, music. Yeah. This is just something that just is so out of left field that maybe they're laughing at it as a defense mechanism. They're yeah, scared yeah. of it. They're like, "What even is this?" And I say it sounds good. Like I, it sounds like a little bit of a mess still because Tom Berenger is not the front man person. But it sounds like this pretty piece of piano music. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it just seems odd that they just be like chuckling at it, and being like, "This is ridiculous." I think my point, though, is that they do dance around it, but it's there. The idea that this music doesn't fit. They recognize that in a sense in this movie. That it's a little ahead of its time. There wouldn't really be anything like Springsteen for another like 12 years or so after that. You know what I mean? Like They're skipping ahead in rock history, right? but they aren't completely ignorant of that in yeah. the movie they're like well we have to sort of have people say things from time to time to if address anything, it i mean i guess that it probably should have been something more like the early beatles stuff would have been more of a fit well yeah but they just didn't have a band that was going to be able to write that yeah <laughs> they didn't have whoever wrote the i guess that was the dude from was it the dude from fountains of wayne that wrote that thing you do oh yeah that might be right yeah they didn't have that. They didn't have they that could guy. just create a song right. that was like, oh, shit, this sounds like this would have been a, like a number one hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we flash back to the present. Maggie approaches Frank. Frank is reticent to speak with her, really, about the history. It seems like the death of Eddie is still hanging over him. And when we get to Frank's trailer, we realize that Frank is sort of stuck in the past. He hasn't been able to move on. And that's another thing I think the movie does fairly well, is oh, that yeah. it keeps it subtle. It doesn't bash you over the head, but when you look at the lives of Joanne and Frank, especially those two, but the other ones as well, they're sort of stuck. Yeah. They're haunted by this past. And Actually, yeah, and Doc, too, which is the saddest, <laughs> really. We've goofed on a decent amount of things in the movie so far. I will say, though, this 100% resonates with me being stuck on the past. I don't think I'm there anymore, but long... resonates with you. It is me. Right. I mean, long <laughs> periods of time in my life. And now I would say I'm not really someone that, that dwells on the past or focuses on the future. Now I'm just like a nothing. Like, just <laughs> I, like just, I have ceased to exist. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like big chunks of my life. It's just like I just cannot get past what happened during years where I was having fun. Is the thing that Eddie pulled 
aspirational. Like, do we wish Somewhat. that we could just it walk sounds, away? It sounds, it's intriguing. Yes. I would love to be able to just walk away. Yeah. I don't know what you do, though. How do you get, a, like, a new life? Would people notice? Not that many. <laughs> maybe my family. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a maybe. So Frank's trailer has been ransacked. Doesn't seem that broken up about it. He gets this unexpected call from Doc, who he hasn't spoken to for a long time. That's another thing the movie doesn't quite explain is how much time has passed since the surviving members of the cruisers have spoken to each other. How? Uh, who knows? I was struggling with it a little bit in terms of how much I was buying it. Because I, I think my initial reaction is to be like, really, these people were in a band, put out a record, toured together spent a lot of time together and now they've just all not talked for this long of a period of time because at first i'm like i don't think so but then the more i go on i think about myself and how many people i don't talk to anymore and i'm like okay yeah it makes sense it holds up well yes i think that in 1982-83 this is still pre a lot of like revival tours reunion tours you have to understand that rock music was still only a few decades old so yeah. people still were in that mindset of like well mick jagger won't be doing this when he's 50 and I, you know what i mean yeah. like that was still happening in the 80s like people <laughs> didn't know that like there was gonna be a future where right even a band that only had one album of course they would like reunite and tour and do yeah. signings or whatever so yeah i think that they're saying eddie's death was painful the members of the band all went in their separate directions yeah and i mean look keeping in touch you forget was a lot harder. It's just, yeah. and oh, I don't like forget. Trying to check up on people. It's not like we make this joke probably. We've probably made it a few too many times, but it, it is just like the end of social network, like Frank just sending a friend request to Joanne. Oh, God. Like clicking it over and over, waiting for her to accept it. I think in those days, it's like you had to track down her number and call her, which, you know, eventually does happen. What if she's not in the book? Then you never see her again. <laughs> Private investigator. So Doc calls. Frank goes to see him. Doc is a DJ in Asbury Park at, at a very small radio station. Doesn't seem to be... It's broadcasting to no one. Yeah. It's not quite the radio station from Airheads. But it's the radio station from Wet Hot American Summer. Like That's the, right. The cords yeah, everything's aren't even connected. unplugged. <laughs> Doc's in rough shape. Looks bad. For some reason... Joey Pants is wearing a nose prosthetic that he doesn't wear in the flashbacks. I, yeah, I didn't get that. I guess a way to make him look older. He it, it it certainly ma- looks bad. It makes him look weird. His hair is horrific. <laughs> yeah, well. It's <laughs> yeah. a little rough for me Well, at to least watch, you aren't yeah. growing it as long as that. That's true, Because yeah. he, he's got those strands, but oh, they're long. Yeah. It's a rough look. But he's got big plans. He wants to put together like a new cruisers lineup because he sees what Sal's doing with the name. He's talking about this movie, The Life of Eddie Wilson. This is sad. I, Frank reacts appropriately, which yeah, is he's basically... like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> and really kind of is like ready to leave yeah. as soon as this starts being pitched. Until it becomes clear that Doc doesn't have a ride home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, fuck. So they're in the car and the Springsteen voice going on under the scenes just like while they're listening to the radio and stuff it's so distracting because what i forget what song well, they're now, listening to is it tender years or yeah something? And i it's think like, so oh we've reached the happening? point in the movie though too where they're like in asbury park yeah it's like hitting you in the face at this point right turns out when they get back to doc's place he's been hit too so not only was frank's trailer ransacked doc 
has as well. And Doc explains to Frank that whoever's doing this is after the tapes, those legendary missing tapes from the second album, A Season in Hell. I did like Doc leading Frank up to where he lives, and he's giving him the whole preamble about, well, you know, it looks a lot better on the interior. <laughs> he's like, it looks rough on the outside, but wait till you see the interior, because it's yeah. like setting him up for the joke, right. I guess. So we go back to 1962 again. Turns out that Frank plays piano. Sounds like he's playing Backstreets. Joanne comes inside to this club where Frank works, and she's wearing like basically a bathing suit and a button-down shirt. She looks unbelievable. They definitely have an attraction for each other. I will say, I mean, not to just talk about how women look, Berenger looks like a god himself. Yeah, he's a hunk. He looks muscular. He looks good. Yeah. As usual would go on, he's a kind of a rough-looking guy. In Platoon, he's, like, scary-looking. He was still playing, like, a Major League Baseball player in 1989, which would have been, yeah. like, six years after this. Which he looked good in that movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, ladies. And I felt like this was sort of a weird revelation that Frank is into Rambo, the poet, and he gives Joanne the book, and they're talking about him a little bit. Not like a lot, but as you're going to find out, not only did Frank write the fucking songs, he's the one introducing Rambo into the mix. Like, Eddie is a fraud. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think that's, you know, there's kind of a critical point in the movie and their relationship, Eddie joanne and frank and eddie makes a decision i guess in terms of how they're going to move forward but you're like if eddie tried to move on without frank i mean he'd be back to sal's writing the songs yeah it seems like it and it would be a disaster they refer to frank as word man and i guess that's because he knows how to write stuff not the most creative nickname i've ever heard that's how things were back then. Though. Yeah, yeah. It was right. pretty straightforward with the, <laughs> the nicknames. Things hadn't been taken before, so it was like <laughs> the first time. Yes. <laughs> In the present, continuing on with this journey down Old Home Street, Frank goes to see Eddie and the Cruisers featuring Sal Amato. And this is like a big oof. It's an oldies act on the boardwalk in New Jersey. I guess probably at a casino. It's sort of hard to tell where they're playing. Right. It seems like a regular gig, though. They just do this show regularly there. It's like when Lady Gaga was in Vegas. I was thinking Britney Spears or Celine Dion. Yeah, that's yeah, true. It's the same idea. Yeah. It's sad, but I hate to keep going back to those reviews I quoted, but this is hitting the nail right on the head. And I think this shit has started to pop up probably at this point because a lot of the one-hit wonders, one-album wonders of the early days of rock and roll, probably starting in the mid-50s up through the early 60s, like pre-Beatles and shit. Right. They were like, oh, fuck, now we're 40 years old. We're 45 years old. Now what do we do? Yeah. We had one hit. Well, let's try to milk it. And that's exactly what Sal's doing. And it's it's, cringy because Sal stinks. And it actually does seem gross. I I think it's well portrayed. You get the sleaziness around it. Yeah, they have replacements for everyone else in the band besides sal they have like a a woman that looks like joanne they have a fake eddie etc and they're playing betty lou got a new pair of shoes the way that sal wanted to play it and all this shit but frank comes in and sees the show and he just seems amused by it i would be disgusted and turn right around oh i know especially when he launches into like all of his shit about eddie like rapsing. yeah my best friend yeah just going on and on and 
I mean, when he's doing his spiel in the crowd, that's fine because he's not specifically talking about Eddie, even though it's like not funny and kind of embarrassing. Oh, yeah. But yeah, when he does like the whole thing about Eddie Wilson, the voice of the time and blah, 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 and he's my best friend and he's sometimes I feel like he's still alive and all that stuff. If that was coming from a real place and it was the only time he said those words, then it would be different. But right. when it's he's all part just of the show. doing an act, yeah. it's like, ugh. Yeah, and he's got a lot of balls too. When you see the, what, the way he acted in these flashbacks, yeah, yeah, it's all fucked up too. Because he's basically just like dragging Eddie's corpse up if they could have ever found it to prop him <laughs> up on stage right. and just blow himself. Look at me, I'm a guy who was in the cruisers. That's and right, I was the cruisers really. Who are these people in this audience? They're wearing like tuxedos, almost like very dressed up. It was just a better time. For stuff like that, they're holding lighters up, up for this. The the one guy that you were pointing out, I don't know if you wrote him down, but holy hell! Yeah, there's a couple of very exuberant audience members who are super into this. Turns out that Maggie's already there seeing the show as well. Frank seems a little more open to speaking with her now, a little bit. He's still a little guarded, but he wants to talk to Sal first. And it just seems that something's in the air. Maybe it's because of Maggie. Maybe it's because of the desperation going on with Doc, but there's a lot of cruisers talk going on all of a sudden. Their songs are on the radio because I guess this is another thing that the movie doesn't really hammer home, but if you pay attention, I guess the album was re-released. Right. So some of the stuff is popping up on the radio all over again. They blow past it, but really, Doc must have inadvertently fucked them all over. Yes, it (laughs) seems like it. We see no royalties or any payout on this reissue. <laughs> Frank's like, I wrote the fucking song. I know, and I'm getting. And I'm, I'm living, living in a, a trailer. trailer. <laughs> <laughs> no, this isn't bothering him, but he should be like infuriated. Yeah. Well, it does seem that everyone's very naive and doesn't yeah, really yeah. know a lot about anything. I do love when they cut back into the past, and it, it's sort of an interesting transition so the fake cruisers with sal on stage they launch into on the dark side and then it it goes back into the past with frank being given his chance to to try out for the band basically and show them this song he wrote and they're playing it it looks like on like a rooftop or something right it's hard to even explain where they are it must just be the roof of the bar or something i don't know they're still by the beach so yeah and that's when it dawned on me on one of the rewatches. I was like, is On the Dark Side just about Joanne? Are we already I think at all that the point? songs are. Yeah. yeah. It seems like they're all sort of about like, she's never going to know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> on the dark side. <laughs> feel so mean. <laughs> what does that mean? What do you know. feel mean? I- there's certain words that they were just like, we just need like a-, a word that he can say in a fun way, like where he just like stretches it out. Yeah, On the Dark Side is a great song, and if it was like a an, another track on Darkness on the Edge of Town or Born to Run. Born to Run, you'd be like, this is great. Yeah. But it's just weird that it came out like a decade later by someone else that right. just sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> the dark side's gonna man, nothing is real. Walks like a dream. Crazy makes me feel so mean. 
Not bad. <laughs> Not bad? Hey, what's with you? The kid can't play, he can't sing, and he can't write. So what's not bad? He's got something we need. Like what? Words and music, Doc. Words and music. All right, now let's get on with the music. See what I'm doing? Do it like I'm doing it. It's rock and roll. All right? Do that. No, 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 no. Like this, like this. Relax. You say not bad? <laughs> right? Come on. Oh, you're right. I can't do this. No, man. Now, come on. Just concentrate. It's easy. It's like uh, getting laid, riding a bike. Come on. See? Loose enough. His hands up there. Yeah, come on. Go. Go, go. Cruisers. 
So it cuts back from this performance in present day to the past. Eddie sees something in Frank that the others don't. I think this is a great scene. Well, I'm sure he's like, oh, here's someone who can actually write a song. Yeah, and it's, again, touching on what we've already said, and we've already kind of touched on the scene a little bit. It's something so out of the blue. Like, no one's ever heard anything like this, yeah, yeah. what he's doing. He's got words and music. And it's all like Eddie has nothing, because he does have... It's like he doesn't have the ideas, but he does have the style to make it into something. Yeah, and he recognizes that even though this is something that no one could have imagined, that it's truly revolutionary. It's as if they've stumbled upon a sound in rock music that would not exist for at least another decade, and they're just skipping over all the other steps. Right. And as I've said, it's not as if the film totally ignores that aspect of it, but it doesn't harp on it either. That's so it, true. At times, yeah. you can be like, well, this is weird to me, but whatever. So they're playing it on the roof, and at first, Doc, Sal, even the drummer, Kenny, a little bit, although Kenny like barely factors in anything right. in the movie. He's just like a nothing. They're sort of laughing at him while he plays the song, and it's Eddie that's like, well, no, wait a minute. We can do something with this. And then like Wendell on sax is like quick to jump in. Yeah. Joanne is always fairly supportive. Wendell seems pretty authentic. I buy that character. Wendell's played by Michael Toons, quote Toons, Michael quote Toons and Toons, who's an actual like real musician as well. Makes sense. Yeah, he's always on board. He knows how to like jump in when Eddie takes on the dark side to the next level as they're jamming on the roof. It's sort of like Say by the Bell. You know, <laughs> just they just immediately right yeah. are able to like pick up these songs without any discussion or practice or anything. <laughs> yeah. Even whenever Eddie's like yelling at Sal, like, "What do you want, vacation?" Like Sal jumps in with the bass, and he's just already got a bass oh, line yeah. that fits perfectly. The way that the film cuts back to the knockoff band in the future playing this song, the same song, it's so embarrassing. Oh yeah, it's effective. That juxtaposition, you're like, okay, yeah, here was something real and authentic and here's like the crappy remake version of it yeah with a fake eddie singing it and then sal's wrap up with the crowd with the lighters out and he's like those oldies but goodies remind me of you (laughs) so embarrassing that one guy with his lighter just so into it yeah hopefully everyone in that audience is old enough to be dead by 2021 uh i think so it seems no <laughs> come on that was a joke i don't know a lot of people lived hard lives in the 80s a lot the of guy that plays sal is cocaine. still alive and he's probably <laughs> older than those people so frank joins the cruisers officially they play his songs things start to take off and as he's finally discussing this stuff with maggie one memory that comes up is when the band played benton college where they- frank was once a student Things start to take off, but it also seems like they play at the same bar every night. Not a lot of filming locations involved with this movie. (laughs) So they're going to play this college where Frank went, and Joanne and Frank end up spending the day together, walking the campus, running into Frank's old friends. And one of the ideas of this little performance that they're going to do is that Eddie doesn't feel like they fit in at this college. It's a more upper class. Yeah situation they're more of like a working man's type band it might be just an of the times type thing this was like hard for me to rationalize or make sense of i guess i'm just like you're a band playing rock music i would think kids in college are a target demo 
I'm sure that in certain colleges, like upper class, they wouldn't have been as into rock music as like yeah. urban areas and stuff like that. They would just go see like an orchestra. No, not quite, but yeah. like crooners and shit like that. Right. Because it was still early days. Oh, yeah. With rock music. Now, yeah, I mean, this movie doesn't ever mention the Beatles or Elvis or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, some of these people would be into it. And they do win the crowd over. That's it's true, just, yeah. They feel like personally, right. as human beings, they feel out of place. In and that's true. Area. I mean, they're dressed differently than everyone, and they're which still is harped on. Up and coming because the movie doesn't really. I'm assuming their album is out by now, but they never really explain that. And how much radio play they're getting. Yeah, so who knows? It could be early in the band's history, so maybe they don't feel like anyone knows who they are anyway. I don't know. It's hard to tell. It is. Joanne and Frank spend the day together. They've grown close, and then they ultimately share a secret kiss, which Eddie oversees. (laughs) Yeah, uh, probably the worst-kept secret I've ever seen. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why they chose to kiss within eyeline of the place where the rest of the band was. It it's actually a hilarious cut because you're just watching them make out and then the camera just basically pans over to the porch where the rest of the band sits just looking directly at them. I think Eddie's the only one who looks. I know. I don't know. I think he's the only one who sees, but it kind of looks like they're all looking that direction. Kind of. So in retaliation during their performance in front of this college, some of these people whom Frank knows personally, Eddie ridicules Frank by repeatedly referring to him as Toby Tyler, which was a reference I didn't really understand until I was looking at the Wikipedia stuff and then this was coming up. Okay, I'm ready to learn something. It's pretty close to what Eddie says. Okay. Toby Tyler, or Ten Weeks with a Circus, also known simply as Toby Tyler, is a film directed by Charles Barton and starring a blah, 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 a bunch of people. It was a Walt Disney production, came out in 1960, and it's based on an 1880 children's book, basically about a boy who runs away from his stern uncle to join the circus, befriending the chimpanzee and... Interacting okay. with the clowns and all of that shit. And that's basically what Eddie says on stage. Right. But I didn't realize that Toby Tyler was a specific thing. Like a known reference point? Known to someone. I'm yeah, not yeah. sure who. It is I had never heard one. of it right. before this. Yeah. But I guess it was a thing that existed. Well, Eddie likes the obscure. This would have happened in 1963. The movie came out in 1960. Okay. And was a Disney movie. So I'm sure. It was relevant then. Yeah. So it basically tries to humiliate him, but as it cuts back to Frank telling Maggie, they were able to put their differences aside. And there's never really like a resolution to the love triangle in that timeline of the 60s. Right. That's pretty much it. So I guess you have to just assume that Frank and Joanne just never really talk about the incident again. I guess. In order to continue on with the band not that the band would go that much longer right yeah they just had to put feelings aside to make it all work so back in the 80s frank goes to see kenny the drummer who now works in a casino in atlantic city and kenny reminds frank that there were bad times too although it seemed like the incident at benton college was pretty bad but it goes deeper the arguments the fights and then finally wendell dying Wendell died of an overdose, but it was reported as a heart attack, and Frank was evidently kept out of that loop entirely, and Wendell was only 37 at the time. 
very strange that they didn't tell someone in their own fucking band. I don't get it how at all. Wendell died. It doesn't make sense to me. They're like, we can't trust him. He kissed Joanne. <laughs> He'll blab that secret to the press. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I guess they didn't want it to get out the real reason that he died, but it just seems so strange that Word Man couldn't be in the know. It seems like he's the only one to, right. that would not know. When the drummer talks to Frank later, he's almost angry that Frank hasn't put it together. Yeah, yeah. he's like, wake up, you naive idiot. <laughs> but at some point during all of these flashbacks... Probably pre-Wendell's death, I would imagine. The band's first album, Tender Years, is a major hit. There's some definite VH1 behind-the-music type shit going on, but the Cruisers were a band on the rise throughout much of 1963, even despite the setback of Wendell passing away unexpectedly. Finally, modern-day Frank goes to see Joanne. This is what Frank's probably been waiting for. It's almost like... John Cusack in High Fidelity, he's like, well, we got to move Charlie down the list because I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> he's like, he was going to hit Joanne second, but he's like, all right, let's do Sound Kenny first. That's I'm right. Not ready. Yeah, I got to build myself up to this. Because he's been thinking about making this trip to Joanne's house probably every day. Well, since Doc years. told him right. that she was back in town, because yeah. I guess she went to Vegas at some point and now was oh, back in right. Atlantic yeah. City. So as soon as he heard that, he was like, all right, well, <laughs> it's time. I got to make my way over there. Joanne is a stage choreographer in Wildwood. For those of you familiar with New Jersey, this definitely is a map of New Jersey type movie. Like they hit all these different cities. I don't know that they actually go to them for real when they were filming, but they mention a lot of them. Right. That's for sure. Old flames really do die hard when they see each other. It's like no time has passed at all, even though oh, yeah. they did age up Joanne a little bit, whereas... Frank looks exactly the same. A lot of smiles, a lot of smiling back and forth at each other. Yeah, and you wonder, like, why didn't they keep it going? Were they just so upset over Eddie dying, I guess? I think there was a guilt thing there. But for 20 years? Yeah, I know. Come on. I don't know. How long do you have to wait? Like, a few weeks? She moved across the country to get away from him. She reveals that she's been receiving strange phone calls where the person on the other end just starts playing the song Tender Years and then hangs up. That would be weird. Yeah, not a move I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, you're just like calling up ex-girlfriends playing Dashboard Confessional songs. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> she also says that her place was broken into as well, and she's also kind of in the dark about what's happening. But Not once did any of these people call the cops about their no. places being broken into. But Frank tells her it's about those old tapes, A Season in Hell, and that sparks the big flashback to that fateful night. We start uh, to yeah. piece it together. What went wrong? What happened? It's a pretty funny scene. We're in the studio. We start to hear a little bit of the new album. It also sounds like something that wouldn't have come out in the 60s, but... Sounds like a different band, though. I don't know. Okay. I it's just more... Th- I mean, they put, like psychedelic rock and well uh, just because of the, yeah that yeah. little piece at the beginning right, right. and then it launches it's a little heavier okay yeah yeah it's right, like fair. a big guitar solo which probably also wasn't very common yeah the, the electric guitar shredding doesn't really <laughs> seem like the sound from the every first time yeah. bound to fall <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very like whiny sort of like emo yeah that's where he was heading but whatever Again, well, who's writing the songs? Right. Is it Wordman or is it Eddie? So the Satin Records exec doesn't like it. 
<laughs> really kind of open about that. Yeah, he's kind of just the guy that they got to play really. that character. Also, just a terrible actor. Oh yeah, you want to be a poet? Go to Greenwich Village. <laughs> <laughs> Stinks. Yeah, minimal support from Doc and Sal. No, in fact, they're like, he's right. It does stink. <laughs> They always seem like villains or assholes in the past, and there's never really any reconciliation with that. I don't know why Frank is so like chummy with them in the 80s. I would have held a grudge. I think and, like so. These guys didn't want me in the band. They were fucking assholes. <laughs> I know, really. They shit on everything. And Sal is like, look, they went on the dark side. Why don't we just give them that? And Eddie's, you know, launches into his whole thing. He's like, fuck on the dark side. It's too dark and strange. The album's rejected. And Sal says one of the immortal quotes of the movie, we ain't great. We're just some guys from Jersey. Right. And Eddie's like, well, if we're not great, then there's no point in playing. Yeah, which is literally like every conversation we have about doing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You are the Sal of this show. Oh, absolutely. And I'm the Eddie. Neither of us have the talent. We need a Frank. Yeah, we don't have the word, man. Yeah. (laughs) I think we'd be down with a Joanne as well. But as soon as Eddie runs off, then Sal turns on Frank and it's like, this is your fault. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Two seconds ago, he's like, they went on the dark side. It's like, well, motherfucker, I wrote on the dark really? side. I mean, this band wouldn't exist without Frank. They'd well, still they would be exist, playing. but they'd still be doing Betty Lou to a crowd of six. At Tony's, the bar on yeah. the boardwalk. Eddie storms off, gets in his car. Joanne catches up with him and goes with him. He takes her to the Palace of Depression. It sounds like the name of my house. A makeshift castle made of garbage and junk that he visited often as a child. Sounding more and more like my house. And so Palace of Depression or Palace Depression is a real place. I don't know if that's the actual one that's in the movie or not. I I'm, I don't know. But it was a building made of junk that was located in Vineland, New Jersey, built by the eccentric and mustachioed George Daner. I I want my Wikipedia to say mustachioed. (laughs) A former Alaska gold miner who lost his fortune in the Wall Street crash of 1929. Oh, no. This amusement was known as, quote, the strangest house in the world, unquote, and, quote, the home of junk, (laughs) and was built as a testament of willpower against the effects of the Great Depression. I don't actually think it still exists to this day. But it's been linked with some weird shit, including disappearances and who knows. All kinds of weird shit. If it is the place in the movie, or at least similar to it, it kind of seems like the type of place that would invite stalkers, murderers. (laughs) It seems like just a a place where uh, bad people would hang out after hours. I have a feeling that the one in the movie is not the real one, but I I don't know for sure. But it is weird because when they go there, when... Eddie takes Joanne there. It does seem like he has the run of the place, and it's like, wasn't this private property? Who well, he's owns a star. This? He makes friends. He just turns on the electricity, so there's like lights and shit. I don't know. It's weird. But yeah, I mean, you said it when we. I mean, it seems like it's like something out of like a Tim Burton movie. So he shows her this place, and then they part ways. And after that, Joanne is left on the side of the road while Eddie goes and has his crash, and that's sort <laughs> yeah. of the end of that story. Joanne tells Frank in the 80s that someone is parking in her driveway in a 57 Chevy. She doesn't know what to think. She doesn't quite want to have to say it out loud. I know. Frank's but it like, seems it's like not she's Eddie. starting to buy in yeah. to the idea that Eddie's alive. And yeah, Frank is like, God damn it. Like, I fucking called you after yeah, 20 years. 
Eddie's dead, and I'm finally going to get a chance at this. But not really, because it. this ghost is still looking over my shoulder. Yeah, it's like finding out she believes in some like conspiracy or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> but Joanne is able to complete the one piece of the puzzle that Frank could not, and no one else has been able to either. She knows where the tapes for A Season in Hell are. She reveals that it was actually her who went and checked out the master tapes from the studio. That's a big blow to Maggie's narrative there. You're like, okay, well, that answers a big question. It's like it wasn't fucking Eddie. Right. Joanne then hid them in Palace Depression or Palace of Depression where she felt they belonged. So the two of them go and retrieve the tapes, which are somehow still there. After I, well, all this time. not like decomposing or anything. Twenty yeah, years in the universe of this movie, it's hard to even tell what the fuck is going on with this place. Like <laughs> right. they add this palace depression thing in at the last minute, and you're like, well, who owns it? And does do people go on to it? Right. How would these tapes be there? Aren't they like exposed to the elements? They are under a roof, but it's not indoors. It's just right. under a I know, roof yeah. outside. It's like, come on. I don't know. It's a big stretch. Joanne and Frank take the tapes back to her house. Unbeknownst to them, they're being pursued by a familiar-looking 57 Chevy. At Joanne's house, the phone rings, and Tender Years plays on the other end and then hangs up. Joanne is definitely upset by this. And when you get a look at her house, you see that she as well has been sort of stuck in this time period. That's she has right. a lot of pictures of Just them from the band. framed photos of their good times. And she's a beautiful woman. No one did anything in the 20 years in between. That's what I mean. She's a beautiful woman and clearly yeah. not married. Tom Berenger, good-looking guy, not married, not attached. They seem stuck in the past. Right. Unable to move forward with their lives, really. But then Joanne starts acting strange, even more strange than she did when they were at the bar talking about this shit, and she started going down that road. And she thinks that Eddie is signaling to her in their old ways that they used to have together, which, of course, they only are bringing up now. (laughs) It's not like they established that earlier in the movie. She just has to tell us, oh, yeah, this is how Eddie used to signal to me to get ready. I guess, like, when they were teens or something, and she was being picked up at her house. I I don't know what she's talking about, right? but that's the only thing I could... Well, how many years did he have the 57 Chevy for? Well, it was 62. Okay. I guess I don't really know how old they're supposed to be. I think they're supposed to be like early 20s. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess that's fair. So he's signaling to her in their old ways, and then he'll be right over to get her. The phone rings again when Frank is downstairs and Joanne is upstairs, so you can't hear what's going on on the other end, but you just hear her. She answers it, and Frank overhears her talking to someone she clearly believes is Eddie. So he decides to leave, but then sees a barn where he hides his car and decides to wait and see what happens. A mystery man driving the blue 57 Chevy arrives at the house and calls to Joanne, beeping the horn. But before she can reach the car, Frank runs out, exposes the imposter, revealing him to be none other than Doc. (laughs) Just like the lamest thing ever. And the way they do it, too, it's like you don't see who it is, and you see their reactions, and they're like, son of a bitch. It doesn't really... And they're like, it's, oh, it's Doc. It's not the most tense buildup I've ever seen. Turns out Doc was simply after the master tapes all along, and so he launches into this pathetic sob story. Like, we we already know that he is. <laughs> because, I mean, he admitted that to Frank earlier, basically. He's like, we gotta get those tapes. It's like fucking 
the jack off tape and wet hot american summer (laughs) we gotta get that tape (laughs) just keep saying that in conversations and frank's like yeah i I don't know where they are (laughs) yeah but we gotta get that tape though and they take pity on him because he's like i'm a loser i have nothing and i need this i just need a score they're like all right jesus so even though Doc was just gaslighting the fuck out of Joanne and like messing with her emotions oh, on I a know. fucked up level, yeah, Frank and Joanne just decide to let him have the tapes because he has nothing not else. even just let him have. Frank really just an outpour of support. What's delayed because at first when he's like doing his whole thing, like I'm gonna do this for us, I'm gonna make something and blah blah blah. It seems like Joanne and Frank are like rolling their eyes, <laughs> but I guess they're not because then Frank's like. Go get him, Doc! Yeah, and like, maybe the worst part of the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. So, Doc drives away talking big about what he's going to do with the tapes. I guess that sort of factors into the sequel a little bit because people are aware of a season of In Hell in that movie. Okay. But the sequel mostly like just is a separate thing in a lot of ways. I don't know how to explain it, but it, there's not a lot of connection really right. to the end of this movie. Makes sense. Joanne invites Frank inside. The implication being, I guess they're going to be together, at least for that night, but it seems like maybe they have a future. So did he fuck her back then in the day? It's, I guess not. I was thinking, no. I, I, I really took it as this kiss was sort of a moment that kind of shut everything down. It was building to maybe there's going to be something, but then like the kiss happens, Eddie sees the kiss, there's all this tension, and everybody just decides, like, let's just let the situation go as it was yeah so basically he's a virgin who lives in a trailer yeah is what we're saying i think so i think that's a fair take <laughs> he's finally gonna cash in yeah that's right it's been a long wait oh yeah how fucking great would that be though <laughs> <laughs> well I, i'm assuming it's over pretty quickly <laughs> she's like i waited 20 years for this <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> Frank just asleep like a baby in two seconds. Yeah, it's the first time he's ever fallen right asleep in his life. Yeah. He's usually awake all night, <laughs> crawl on the walls. For some reason, he's never <laughs> masturbated either. Like he just he never even heard of it. Right. <laughs> How annoying is it when Sal says the word cruisers? By the way, yeah, the his voice is annoying. His whole like Jersey well, accent thing. He's wait doing. till you borrow and see the sequel. Oh, how I'm annoying sure. Sal is in two. Even I though he's not it. in it a lot, <laughs> he's not in this one that much either, comparatively to like Berenger. But yeah. he's in the sequel no, way I, less. Make no mistake, he is hateable. <laughs> yeah, that's what people review our podcast. Make no mistake, they are hateable. Absolutely. All right. So the first time you saw this a few months ago. Right. Were you surprised by this little button ending here with the wrap-up video and then what that leads to with the bearded man? I was a little surprised. I was kind of taken out of the movie by this point. The way everything wraps up with the Doc character, I felt like it was kind of silly. I really didn't enjoy the end as as much as I enjoyed most of the movie leading up to it. I think now I'm a little bit more getting into where they leave you with the Eddie stuff at the end. Yeah, I think that the first time I watched this, I was expecting a bigger reveal. I obviously knew there was a sequel called right, Eddie and the right. Cruisers 2, Same. colon, Eddie Lives, yeah. exclamation point. Since, you know, we literally have to, like, click past it on the Blu-ray menu screen, this is not a two-disc situation. 
So it didn't surprise me that Eddie was alive. So I was thinking there would be a bigger reveal. You kind of want that scene. You want a scene where he has to confront Frank and Joanne and the people that he left behind. I got myself in the mindset of I wasn't really sure that they actually reveal anything about Eddie in this movie. And then, it, well, yeah, once they have fucking Doc there at right, the end, right. you're like, oh, so we're never going to Exactly. Know. So that's kind of, I, I had kind of just come to that. And I'm like, oh, must be the second one is this whole thing of just like, oh, yeah, he is alive. Yeah, right, yeah. I kind of agree with that sentiment, too. Like, you start to th- lose faith that right. there's going to yeah, be yeah. any answer. What happens is we see Maggie's report on TV. In the old days, this is something that hasn't existed. This doesn't even seem like it's something from the 80s. This seems like (laughs) something from the 60s where at an appliance store that has TVs, they have a bunch of TVs in the display window that's out to the street. They're all playing the same thing. That's something you see in TV and movies a lot. Yeah. But I don't know if I've ever seen it in real life. I feel like it's usually preceding like a riot. Like you usually see someone throw like a (laughs) Molotov cocktail through the window. A bunch of people are gathered together on the street watching this report on these TVs through the display window of this store, and it ends with a bunch of clips of young Eddie, and then it it lingers on a dark screen, and you see a reflection on the TV, and it's like Eddie with a beard, so right. he's standing there watching it amongst this crowd. And it does the absolutely insane choice where it does a freeze frame <laughs> and then unfreezes, and the movie keeps going oh, for another minute. It is strange. So they wanted you to pay attention. They're like, look at this face. He never turns around. Right. You only see the reflection, really, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, so you look can at tell this. It's him. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely him. But then he just turns and walks down the street, and that's the end of the movie, basically implying that, yes, he is alive. But is out it there. that worse if he's alive? Because you're like, how could you do this to Joanne? Well, yeah, it definitely makes him seem even more selfish because his his stupid artistic pursuits, it's like you didn't even write the songs, dude. Right. Number one. Number two, yeah, you left Joanne behind. How could you? I guess she, she, he realized that she was maybe really in love with Frank. That's true. He had to remove himself from the situation. So ignoring how you feel about the doc ending at Joanne's house, just forget um, about that. Okay, all right. Do you think that this movie is better or worse without that little button? Do you think it makes it better or worse? Mm. E- or neither? It's just there. I think the shitty answer is neither, but I kind of feel like neither. Although I would lean towards worse. I would rather it just be a mystery. I would rather not have confirmation. I would rather there. there be no obvious clues and then one of those things where someone discovers something That's years true. later where you're yeah. like, holy shit, there he is the whole right. time in this background scene. I don't know something. how they could do it in a way that made sense, but if you found out that Doc wasn't doing one of the things, whether it was like playing the song. Right. Or like that, yeah, I, yeah, I would yeah. be into that, yeah. Yeah, like they confront Doc and he's like, what are you talking about? Admitting to a bunch of stuff, uh, yeah, right. and then like the phone call like comes up later, like not even right then, but like yeah, they're yeah. having coffee inside Joanne's, and it, right. they bring that up, and he's like, I, "I don't know what you mean." Yeah, they're like, "Quit fucking around, dude." Right. Or whatever. Yeah, something like that. I, I would have been good with that. All right. So, 1989, Eddie and the Cruisers Two: Eddie Lives, directed by Jean Claude Lord, the only returning members. Of the cruisers or the people from the first movie are Eddie and Sal. Had a $5 million budget. The box office was $536,508. It was another bomb. 
people ripped apart this <laughs> movie at the time. Yeah. Although, again, there's claims that it's a bit of a cult hit. I watched this movie shortly after watching the first one. And I have to say, it is bad, but it is not unwatchable or anything like that. It is okay. very watchable. I laughed at a lot of parts that probably weren't intended to be funny, but it's not like the room where you're like laughing oh, sure, at it. On. You're just sort of amused by how right, characters right. behave and stuff. It's very Canadian. It exists in the real world, but in a version of the real world that's hard to even believe where people are like so obsessed with the cruisers and... <laughs> You know, there's this whole radio contest element to it, and like Martha Quinn from MTV's in it, and Larry King is in it, and stuff oh, like wow. that. They don't have like big parts, but you know, they show up and stuff like that. Like, people are really like monitoring this situation. And then Eddie ends up starting this new band in Canada, and although I don't know if they're supposed to be in Canada or what, I just know they filmed it there. Okay. And everyone speaks like they're Canadian, but you know what I mean. He has this new band, and. They're going to play a show, but then people start figuring out that it's who he is. Because not some people know, and then more people know, and then it becomes like this whole thing. And on its own, I guess it's not that offensive. It has some decent music as well. I think John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band were involved again. A lot of people thought the movie was cynical and was made just to have a soundtrack that would okay, sell yeah. and all that shit. But it's impossible to watch it after watching the first one and not be like, well, what does Joanne think? Where is she? Right. I I know you're not going to get Berenger and Pantaleone in this movie, but like, what about her? I I would love to see the Joanne character reaction because I'm sure she'd be pissed. Although she forgave fucking Doc for gaslighting her pretty quick. That's true. She just gets over it. Yeah. (laughs) She's a tough broad. That's right. All right, so thanks to Ryan for this listener request. I Absolutely. ended up enjoying this movie. I liked it too, Ryan. I hope you don't think that just because we goofed on a lot of things that we hated it or something. Even with the silly ending, I still like a good chunk of the movie. I'll watch it again. Yeah, it doesn't do a great job with the specifics and the details. You you wish that it got a better grip on the story sometimes, right. but it does have that magic, that mystique of caring about something like the passion for this music or something and you sort of just buy into that fairy tale element of the story definitely where there's a little bit of a mystery you're curious as to what happened to eddie you know right from the beginning with the ellen bark and stuff that where there's smoke there's fire they wouldn't be setting it up if there wasn't and yeah i kind of agree with ebert the payoff is not really there with the ending yeah yeah you want something a little more concrete you feel like you're owed a joanne Eddie scene at the end, like this fucking asshole's hiding out with his beard or whatever. Right. But she slaps him across the face. It's still entertaining. The songs are great, even though they are derivative of Bruce. It doesn't mean they're not fun to listen to. Absolutely. Yeah. They're catchy. I I think, like, the first time around, I I was remembering, like, the main two. But watching it today, I'm like, there's actually, like, there's like five or so songs that are, like, pretty good. Yeah. Strong soundtrack, fun to watch. I know it's going to be hard for our listeners who haven't seen it to find it. I don't know if the Blu-ray is in print or out of print, but I'm sure you can get the Blu-ray or the DVD somewhere. That's really your only recourse until somebody puts it on something. Okay. The fact that it was released on Blu-ray means there's an HD master. It could end up on like fucking Amazon or Vudu or iTunes. It's like, I don't understand why it's not. It seems like the type of movie that would be on Amazon, but yeah, it's not. Not right now. Maybe it will be at some point. Who knows? What are you doing? What? What? 
Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Now that Eddie and the Cruisers is in the books, let's talk recommendations real quick. I'll go first. Okay. I'm going to recommend The White Lotus on HBO Max. I believe there are two episodes left as of our recording right now out of the six. Okay. I've enjoyed it. It's a slow burn. It's definitely hilarious to me. I've seen a lot of people that don't like it. It seems like it's very polarized, mixed reactions to it. It stars a whole bunch of people, most notably Alexander Daddario and Sydney right. Sweeney, in my opinion, but also Connie Britton, Steve Zahn, Jennifer okay. Coolidge, amongst others. A lot of people we like to see. Takes place at a resort in Hawaii. It's definitely a satire of rich people. It has like a little bit of class disparity between the people that work there and the guests. The guests are all like super annoying and obnoxious, but it's a slow build. The first two are mildly amusing and you enjoy it. And then the third one, there's this payoff where it's super funny to me because it's built up two episodes worth of backstory and character development to give you like a better payoff in that third episode where there's some funny shit. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. Don't expect to be like rolling on the floor or sucked into the intrigue of it or anything like that right away. It's definitely a lot of like just setting the scene and finding out a little bit piece by piece of each character. I think it's pretty fun. I look forward to the next two episodes. We've mentioned it countless times over the years. It's, there's nothing better than having a Sunday night Absolutely. HBO show to check out. Only six episodes, though. It was written and directed by Mike White, who wrote School of Rock, That's amongst right. other okay. things. And he also wrote the Kim Kelly is my friend episode, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we've been talking a lot about Mike White. A lot of Mike White material. Yeah. All right. So that's mine. Okay. So I'm back on Criterion Channel. They have an awesome neo-noir. I, I mean, I, you could just recommend that, <laughs> this neo-noir section. But I watched Irvin Kirshner's Eyes of Laura Mars. There's things in it that you can certainly goof on that aren't great. It almost feels like a De Palma movie. It's like this weird supernatural 70s crime thriller. But it was a super cool movie, I thought. It has an awesome Barbara Streisand-like song that's like in the beginning and the end. That's kind of like this <laughs> yeah, rock that's what gets jam. the people going. Absolutely, I was loving it. <laughs> John Carpenter wrote like the original version of the script, and I think they like redid it. And he thought it was he hated it, like he thought it was like terrible. But it's still kind of cool that he wrote right. the original Stars script. Stars Faye Dunaway. Yeah, right? yeah. I think it was the movie Irvin Kershner made right before he did Empire Strikes Back. Who's so. the dude in that movie? I forget. Tommy Lee Jones. It oh, was yeah, that yeah, picture yeah. that I posted the other night when you were making fun of my hair <laughs> and lack thereof. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I have. The indicator Blu-ray of it, and I've watched it once. Yeah, it's just. Kind I don't of a even cool remember movie. the I, ending though. I mean, I gave it a three point five, so it's not like I was like, "This movie is amazing." There's definitely things that you can goof on from it, but it's just got that cool late seventies grit, and I, I really enjoyed watching it. So that's on the Criterion Channel, which I'm sure most people don't have. And it is. I mean, it's more expensive than most streaming services, but there's there's good stuff on it. Yeah, I I also have been checking out a lot in that neo-noir section i rewatched body heat but it also has cutter's way manhunter 
I haven't not rewatched Manhunter, but yeah, across 110th Street I watched and The Last Seduction. The Last Seduction I watched. Yeah, I watched a lot of them. I watched one just this week called Trouble in Mind, which had which Carradine is in McCabe, Mrs. Miller. Hmm. Is that David or Keith? I thought it was Keith. Yeah, it's Keith Carradine and Chris Christopherson. It's like a very weird movie. It's hard to even explain it. But yeah, the neo-noir section on the Criterion channel is pretty cool. But I'm sure you can get the Eyes of Laura oh, yeah. Mars somewhere else. I'm, I'm sure. sure streaming. Yeah, a lot places. of them are. A lot of their stuff was streaming other places. But they definitely have a lot of stuff that's just on there, too. And I was just finding myself just running into looking through the same shit on different streaming services. And I was like, I just need like some fresh choices. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. Follow the show on Twitter at Creators Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Now more than ever, we need your support. That's right. Because <laughs> God knows if I see one more one-star rating, I'm just going to delete it. the whole podcast. He's going to pull a fucking Eddie and drive off the bridge. Except I'll murder you first. I'll fake <laughs> my death, but murder you. It'll be more like Vanilla Sky. Me screaming, I swallowed your cum. <laughs> right before driving us off the You're bridge. just like, wait, what? <laughs> Dead immediately. <laughs> anyway, if you'd like a sticker, let us know. If you'd like to be like Ryan and have a listener request, you can also let us know, and we will get to it eventually. We can negotiate, give us a list. Sure. We'll, we'll figure it out. You know, no pressure. We got all the time in the world. We got no plans on stopping anytime soon, so we'll get to it. We have our greatest October to look forward to. That'll be fun coming up. It's not going to be like last year. It's only going to be October. But, you know, hang in there. Keep listening. Follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby on there. Is that everything? I think so. All right. So, once again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
what? I'm about to say it. Say it. Say it. I don't care that you broke your elbow. 